It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The FT. Welcome to this edition of World Weekly with me, Gideon Rachman. This week, we look at the strange trial of a dead man, Sergei Magnitsky. What does it tell us about Putin's Russia? With me on the line from Moscow is our bureau chief there, Charles Clover. From Washington, we've got Jeff Dyer, our diplomatic correspondent. And in the studio, Neil Buckley, a former Moscow bureau chief who's now our East Europe editor. Neil, can you just fill us in on the background? Who was Magnitsky and why is he now being subjected to this posthumous trial? Well, Sergei Magnitsky was a, a corporate lawyer. He was employed by an investment fund called Hermitage Capital, uh, which was, in fact, one of the biggest foreign investors in Russia. The head of Hermitage Capital, a guy called Bill Browder, was excluded from Russia for reasons that have never been fully explained uh, a number of years ago. And then the shell of that investment fund essentially was used as a vehicle by officials in the tax authorities to perpetrate a scam whereby they awarded a tax rebate, which these officials then collected uh, to the tune of $230 million. Magnitsky was employed to look into this. And in the process, he found himself arrested by the people he was actually looking into and charged himself with wrongdoing. And then he died in a Moscow jail, apparently beaten to death uh, in a, a very tragic case in 2009. The reason he's now on trial posthumously, absurd as it sounds, is that the the Russian authorities appear to be trying to blacken his name to say, well, this is someone who uh, himself had uh, a criminal conviction. Uh, He's on trial for alleged tax evasion. In response to uh, measures that have been put in place in the US and elsewhere against those who were involved in the Magnitsky case. So you mentioned those measures, Jeff, in Washington. I mean, the Magnitsky case has become a cause celebre in America and they've passed the Magnitsky law. Can you explain why it's had such purchase and what the Magnitsky law is aimed at doing? Well, the Magnitsky law aims at trying to punish the officials who are behind the torture and death of Magnitsky. So it blocks any assets those officials have in the U.S. and bans them from traveling to the U.S. But the people behind the law hope to make it a sort of test case for a, a broader approach to these kinds of human rights violations and hope that maybe if, if this has some sort of leverage with the Russians, they might be able to broaden it to include other human rights violators in other countries. The reason why the law came into place, I mean, there, there is a lot of disdain for Russia. There was a lot of um, in Congress especially, the story of Magnitsky had a, had a, a big impact here, garnered a lot of support. But still, the bill didn't really get anywhere for a while. But then last year, Russia came up for entry into the WTO, and the supporters of the bill had an ingenious legislative trick, where essentially they said to the administration, we will only pass the bill you need to get passed in order to approve Russia's entry in the WTO if you also let the Magnitsky bill pass. And then that's why it went through. Charles, how much uh, damage has the Magnitsky law done to people in power, the Russian elite? I mean, they do seem to be very nervous about this. I, I'm not sure that it's so much that the, the, the law is passed in the U.S., but the prospect that 
Schengen countries that the European Union could pass similar laws, and that that would give a, a mechanism to shut, you know, pretty much the entire West to you know a portion of the Russian elite, and this would set a huge precedent. How many people uh, would be affected? Well, at the moment, it's about 60 people who are on the Magnitsky list. The thing that I think spooks the Kremlin is that this law is so open-ended and it's so easy to add new names to the list. It's basically people who are suspected of uh, human rights violations, which could be in relation to the Magnitsky case or pretty much anywhere in, in, in Chechnya or people who are suspected of falsifying election results or things like that. So it's quite an open-ended law, and, and it could conceivably spiral into something that's actually quite significant in terms of the Russian elite. Charles, how have the Russians now come to the conclusion that putting a dead man on trial, putting Magnitsky on trial, will help? It's a fairly tone-deaf response, to be honest. One gets the impression that whoever thought of doing this wasn't really aware of how it would play internationally and even domestically that this sort of pushes the boundaries of the absurd and, and just shows exactly how desperate uh, these people are to push back against this possibility of more legislation being passed in, in Europe. I mean, I think that's pretty much why they're, they're doing this now. That said, it's not terribly surprising. I don't think this was thought of by great minds in the Kremlin. I've always had the impression that this was a, a sort of a gang of of rogue law enforcement officials who all uh, look out for each other and who have prevented any sort of accountability in this matter. And for whatever reason, the Kremlin has either chosen not to or is unable to, to intervene. And they've decided to push this posthumous trial in order to make in their eyes, it strengthens their own case, the thing to, to the West. You can't um, uh, pass this legislation um, because uh, this man is a convicted criminal. How quickly do you think this trial will go ahead? Will it even definitely go ahead? And can we assume that Magnitsky will be convicted uh, in absentia, so to speak? I think we can assume that he'll be convicted. His relatives have already made it clear that they don't intend to fight this. They're not even going to show up for the trial. They think that it sort of damages them to even be associated with this, and uh, they think it's utterly ridiculous. That said, it, it's entirely possible that cooler heads could prevail and smarter people in the Kremlin could decide, well, this is actually really, really stupid, and <laughs> we, we need to make sure that we need to stop this. Um, I mean, what's happened so far is that they've had a preliminary hearing on Monday. The judge has named a new court date uh, about a month from now. It's possible that there's some attempt to just sort of kick this into the long grass, and this may actually never go ahead. But, uh, but at the moment, it seems like everybody's very serious about, about putting this guy on trial. Now, uh, Neil, I mean, obviously, beyond the immediate impact of this trial, it raises questions about the nature of Russia now. President Putin's been back in the Kremlin since May. What do you think we can infer from the trial, and does it fit a larger pattern of behavior from the kind of Putin too? Yes, I think it does uh, fit into a, a broader pattern of behavior to a certain extent, which is very much a pushback uh, against any kind of foreign influence or, or perceived attempts uh, by the West to exert any kind of influence or meddle in Russian affairs. Uh, there's been a narrative from Vladimir Putin uh, ever since the protests broke out after the parliamentary elections at the end of 2011 that these were somehow orchestrated by the West. 
and the Magnitsky case, the lobbying that's being done by the West over this is seen as another form of interference in our own affairs. And what you've seen since Putin came back to the presidency is a, is a kind of a, an upsurge of, of conservatism and a soft nationalism, which seems to be really aimed at uh, at his base support, his core supporters outside Moscow and the big cities who tend to be more conservative and more sceptical or suspicious of the outside world, perhaps reflecting that uh, that Putin has really lost a lot of support among the the wealthier and better educated, better travelled middle class in, in the cities. Jeff, it sounds like this could uh, be part of an almost an emerging crisis in US-Russian relations. Of course, the Americans passed the Magnitsky law, but did they anticipate quite what damage it could be doing to what, after all, was a relationship that Obama had set out to work on and to improve? Absolutely. I mean, this, the reaction is, in a sense, is playing into the very worst impressions that a lot of people emotionally already had about Putin, about the sense that it's becoming a much more authoritarian country, much more anti-American, anti-Western. If you remember during the election campaign, Mitt Romney described Russia as our number one geopolitical foe. And a lot of people scoffed at him at the time. But that is a sentiment that is it's becoming quite kind of widely shared, particularly in Congress. And so that does set it up for, as you say, for this to escalate into a much bigger crisis. But if you're thinking about it from terms of the administration, which was always against the bill in the first place, if you think about all the things that Barack Obama wants to do abroad in his second term, the strange thing is a lot of them do involve some sort of help or support from Russia. He's thinking about Iran the best way for him to avoid a war in Iran is to keep very tight international sanctions. For that, he needs some sort of Russian support. He's desperately trying to avoid getting involved in Syria. The best hope he has for that is to try and get the Russians to gradually switch sides in Syria. He said he wants to reduce the U.S. nuclear stockpile in the course of the second term. That would make much more sense politically, much easier politically, if somehow he can get Russia on board on that. Um, he wants to get out of Afghanistan, which he's going to need some sort of Russian assistance to, to physically get troops and equipment out of Afghanistan. And even in the defense cuts that are now going to be planned over the next few years, one of the obvious places for a lot of that to happen is the U.S. forces in Europe. That'll be much more politically easier if Russia isn't scaring the living daylights out of everyone in Central and Eastern Europe. When you go through the administration's second-term agenda, there are lots of areas where he needs, at the very least, to have a viable working relationship, if not actual Russian support to get things done. Charles, perhaps I can finish with you. How does all this feel in Moscow? You said that uh, they feel a bit under siege. Neil talked about the kind of slightly paranoid style of, of Putin too. And I guess the economics could be moving against them with America developing its own form of, of, of gas supplies. Is there a, an anxiety behind the kind of way that Russia's behaving? Or is it more a kind of truculent feeling that they're going to show the world? Um, I think it's, it's certainly more more anxiety-driven. I mean, uh, yes, certainly uh, on the economic front, there's a lot of uncertainty about the, the price of oil, which has been sustaining uh, Russian growth. On the political front, I think that everybody uh, in, in Moscow sees that, that uh, the West is, is not entirely happy with, with Putin's third term. And I think the Kremlin is, uh, you know, determined to show the world that, you know, Russia is a sovereign nation and, and uh, don't mess around with our internal politics. And if you do, uh, you know, we have instruments that, that we can bring to bear. But I think also all politics is local and you have to look at the domestic pol- political situation in, in Russia just to really understand where things are coming from. I mean, as Neil was talking about with the uh, 
the middle class opposition movement, the liberal levers that were formerly used to, to sort of uh, temper a, a sort of knee-jerk uh, patriotic nationalism in the Kremlin have kind of have been abandoned. And those, those people who used to influence the Kremlin, I think are, a lot of them are now discounted as, as being you know, in the opposition or, or sort of seen as, as almost treasonous. And, and Putin is counting on a new constituency, a, a sort of less educated, more provincial, and more conservative, and a, and a much more xenophobic constituency. And so a lot of this, a lot of what we're seeing from the Kremlin is actually just sort of populist electioneering, uh, keeping the, the daily majority going, you know, keeping the, the base happy uh, kind of thing. And, and to, to back off this nationalism, to back off this sort of, uh, this sort of xenophobic um, policies would be seen as a sign of weakness, and that's something that, that Putin absolutely cannot demonstrate right now uh, for political reasons. Charles Clover in Moscow, thank you very much indeed. Uh, thanks also to Jeff Dyer in Washington, to Neil Buckley here in the studio in London, to Martin Starber behind the controls in the studio. That's it for this week. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.